Chapter Thirteen, Part One, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, Suspense, Part One. All the past we leave behind, we debouch upon a newer, mightier world, varied world, fresh and strong. The world we seize, world of labour and the march, pioneers, O oh, pioneers. We detachments steady throwing down the edges through the passes, up the mountain steep, conquering, holding, daring, venturing as we go, the unknown ways, pioneers, O oh, pioneers. Walt Whitman Let us come back to Cape Evans after the return of the first supporting party. Hitherto our ways had always been happy, for the most part they had been pleasant. Scott was going to reach the Pole probably without great difficulty, for when we left him on the edge of the plateau he had only to average seven miles a day to go there on full rations. We ourselves had averaged 14.2 geographical miles a day on our way home to Wonton Depot, and there seemed no reason to suppose that the other two parties would not do likewise, and the food was not only sufficient but abundant if such marches were made. Thus we were content as we wandered over the cape, or sat upon some rock warmed by the sun, and watched the penguins bathing in the lake which had formed in the sea-ice between us and inaccessible island. All around us were the cries of the skewer-gulls, as they squabbled among themselves, and we heard the swish of their wings as they swooped down upon a man who wandered too near their nests. Out upon the sea-ice, which was soggy and dangerous, lay several seal, and the bubblings and whistlings and gurglings which came from their throats chimed musically in contrast to the hoarse ack-ack of the Adeli penguins. The tide crack was sighing and groaning all the time. It was very restful after the barrier silence. Meanwhile the Terra Nova had been seen in the distance, but the state of the sea-ice prevented her approach. It was not until February 4th that communication was opened with her, and we got our welcome mails and news of the world during the last year. We heard that Campbell's party had been picked up at Cape Adair, and landed at Evans Coves. We started unloading on February 9th, and this work was continued until February 14th. There was about three miles of ice between the ship and the shore, and we were doing more than twenty miles a day. In the case of men who had been sledging much, and who might be wanted to sledge again, this was a mistake. Latterly the ice began to break up, and the ship left on the 15th to pick up the geological party on the western side of McMurdo Sound. But she met great obstacles, and her record near the coast this year is one of continual fights against pack-ice, while the winds experienced as the season advanced were very strong. On January 13th the fast ice at the mouth of McMurdo Sound extended as far as the southern end of the Bird Peninsula. Ten days later they found fast ice extending for thirty miles from the head of Granite Harbour. Later in the season the most determined efforts were made again and again to penetrate into Evans Coves, in order to pick up Campbell and his men, until the ice was freezing all around them, and many times the propeller was brought up dead against blocks of ice. The expedition was originally formed for two years from the date of leaving England, but before the ship left after landing us at Cape Evans in January 1911, the possibility of a third year was considered, and certain requests for additional transport and orders for stores were sent home. Thus it came about that the ship now landed not only new sledges and sledging stores, but also fourteen dogs from Kamchatka, and seven mules, with their food and equipment. 
The dogs were big and fat, but the only ones which proved of much service for sledging were Snowy, a nice white dog, and Bullet. It was Oates's idea that mules might prove a better form of transport on the barrier than ponies. Scott, therefore, wrote to Sir Douglas Haig, then C&C in India, that if he failed to reach the pole in the summer of 1911-12, to It is my intention to make a second attempt in the following season, provided fresh transport can be brought down, the circumstances making it necessary to plan to sacrifice the transport animals used in any attempt. Before directing more ponies to be sent down, I have thoroughly discussed the situation with Captain Oates, and he has suggested that mules would be better than ponies for our work, and that trained Indian transport mules would be ideal. It is evident already that our ponies have not a uniform walking pace, and that, in other small ways, they will be troublesome to us, although they are handy little beasts. The Indian government not only sent seven mules, but when they arrived we found they had been most carefully trained and equipped. In India they were in the charge of Lieutenant George Pullin, and the care and thought which had been spent upon them could not have been exceeded. The equipment was also extremely good and well adapted to the conditions, while most of the improvements made by us, as the result of a year's experience, were already foreseen and provided. The mules themselves, by name, Lal Khan, Gulab, Begum, Rani, Abdullah, Pairi, and Khan Sahib, were beautiful animals. Atkinson would soon have to start on his travels again. Before we left Scott, at the top of the Beardmore, he gave him orders to take the two dog-teams south, in the event of Mears having to return home, as seemed likely. This was not meant in any way to be a relief journey. Scott said that he was not relying upon the dogs, and that, in view of the sledging in the following year, the dogs were not to be risked. Although it was settled that some members of the expedition would stay, while others returned to New Zealand, Scott and several of his companions had left undecided until the last moment the question of whether they would themselves remain in the South for another year. In the event of Scott deciding to return home, the dog-teams might make the difference between catching or missing the ship. I had discussed this question with Wilson more than once, and he was of opinion that the business affairs of the expedition demanded Scott's return if possible. Wilson himself inclined to the view that he himself would stay if Scott stayed, and return if Scott returned. I think that Oates meant to return, and I am sure that Bowers meant to stay. Indeed, he welcomed the idea of one more year, in a way which I do not think was equalled by any other member of the expedition. For the most part we felt that we had joined up for two years, but that if there was to be a third year we would rather see the thing through than return home. I hope I have made clear that the primary object of this journey with the dog-teams was to hurry Scott and his companions home so that they might be in time to catch the ship if possible, before she was compelled by the close of the season to leave McMurdo Sound. Another thing which made Scott anxious to communicate with the ship if possible before the season forced her to leave the Sound was his desire to send back news. From many remarks which he made, and also from the discussions in the hut during the winter, it was obvious that he considered it was of the first importance that the news of reaching the Pole, if it should be reached, be communicated to the world without the delay of another year. Of course, he would also wish to send news of the safe return of his party to wives and relations as soon as possible. It is necessary to emphasise the fact that the dog-teams were intended to hasten the return of the polar party, but that they were never meant to form a relief journey. But now Atkinson was left in rather a difficult position. I note in my diary, after we had reached the hut, that Scott was to have sent back instructions for the dog-party with us, but these have, it would seem, been forgotten. 
but it may be that Scott considered that he had given these instructions in a conversation he had with Atkinson at the top of the Beardmore Glacier, when Scott said, "'With the depot of dog-food which has been laid, come as far as you can.'" According to the plans for the polar journey, the food necessary to bring the three advanced parties of man-haulers back from one-ton depot to Hut Point was to be taken out to one ton during the absence of these parties. This food consisted of five weekly units of what were known as XS rations. It was also arranged that, if possible, a depot of dog biscuits should be taken out at the same time. This was the depot referred to above by Scott. In the event of the return of the dog teams in the first half of December, which was the original plan, the five units of food and the dog biscuit would have been run out to them to one ton. If the dog teams did not return in time to do this, a man-hauling party from Cape Evans was to take out three of the five units of food. It has been shown that the dog teams were taken farther on the polar journey than was originally intended. Indeed, they were taken from 81 degrees 15 minutes, where they were to have turned back, as far as 83 degrees 35 minutes. Nor were they able to make the return journey in the fast time which had been expected of them, and the dog drivers were running very short of food, and were compelled to encroach to some extent upon the supplies left to provide for the wants of those who were following in their tracks. The dog-teams did not arrive back at Cape Evans until January 4th. Meanwhile a man-hauling party from Cape Evans, consisted of Day, Nelson, Clissold and Hooper, had already, according to plan, taken out three of the five excess rations for the returning parties. The weights of the man-hauling party did not allow for the transport of the remaining two excess rations, nor for any of the dog-food. Thus it was that when Atkinson came to make his plans to go south with the dogs, he found that there was no dog-food south of Corner Camp, and that the rations for the return of the polar party from Wonton Depot had still to be taken out. That is to say, the depot of dog-food spoken of by Scott did not exist. There was, however, enough food already at Wonton to allow the polar party to come in on reduced rations. This meant that what the dog-teams could do was limited, and was much less than it might have been had it been possible to take out the depot of dog-food to one ton. Also the man-food for the polar party had to be added to the weights taken by the dogs. To estimate even approximately at what date a party will reach a given point after a journey of this length, when the weather conditions are always uncertain, and the number of travelling days unknown, was a most difficult task. The only guide was the average marches per diem made by our own return party and the average of the second return party if it should return before the dog party set out. A week, one way or the other, was certainly not a large margin. A couple of blizzards might make this much difference. In the plan of the southern journey, Scott, working on Shackleton's averages, mentions March 27th as a possible date of return to Hut Point, allowing seven days in from one ton. Whilst on the outward journey I heard Scott discuss the possibility of returning in April, and the polar party had enough food to allow them to do this on full rations. Atkinson and Dimitri, with the two dog-teams, left Cape Evans for Hut Point on February 13th, because the sea-ice, which was our only means of communication between these places, and so to the barrier, was beginning to break up. Atkinson intended to leave Hut Point for the barrier in about a week's time. At 3.30am on February 19th, Crean arrived with the astounding news that Lieutenant Evans, still alive, but at his last gasp, was lying out near Corner Camp, and that Lashley was nursing him, that the last supporting party had consisted of three men only, a possibility which had never been considered, and that they had left Scott, travelling rapidly and making good averages, only 148 geographical miles from the Pole. 
Scott was so well advanced that it seemed that he would be home much earlier than had been anticipated. A blizzard which had been threatening on the barrier, and actually blowing at Hut Point during Crean's solitary journey, but which had lulled as he arrived, now broke with full force, and nothing could be done for Evans until it took off sufficiently for the dog-teams to travel. But in the meantime Crean urgently wanted food and rest and warmth. As these were supplied to him, Atkinson learned, bit by bit, the story of the saving of Evans' life, told so graphically in Lashley's diary, which is given in the preceding chapter, and pieced together the details of Crean's solitary walk of thirty-five statute miles. This effort was made, it should be remembered, at the end of a journey of three and a half months, and over ground rendered especially perilous by crevasses, from which a man travelling alone had no chance of rescue in case of accident. Crean was walking for eighteen hours, and it was lucky for him, as also for his companions, that the blizzard which broke half an hour after his arrival did not come a little sooner, for no power on earth could have saved him then, and the news of Evans's plight would not have been brought. The blizzard raged all that day, and the next night and morning, and nothing could be done. But during the afternoon of the 20th the conditions improved, and at 4.30 p.m. Atkinson and Dimitri started with the two dog-teams, though it was still blowing hard and very thick. They travelled with one rest for the dogs until 4.30 p.m. the next day, but had a very hazy idea where they were most of the time, owing to the vile weather. Once at any rate they seemed to have got right in under White Island. When they camped the second time they thought they were in the neighbourhood of Lashley's tent, and in a temporary clearance they saw the flag which Lashley had put up on the sledge. Evans was still alive, and Atkinson was able to give him immediately the fresh vegetables, fruit and seal-meat which his body wanted. Atkinson has never been able to express adequately the admiration he feels for Lashley's care and nursing. All that night, and the next day, the blizzard continued and made a start impossible, and it was not until 3 a.m. on the morning of the 22nd that they could start for Hut Point, Evans being carried in his sleeping-bag on the sledge. Lashley has told how they got home. At Cape Evans we knew nothing of these events which had made reorganisation inevitable. It was clear that Atkinson, being the only doctor available, would have to stay with Evans, who was very seriously ill. Indeed, Atkinson told me that another day, or at the most two, would have finished him. In fact, he says that when he first saw him he thought he must die. It was a considerable surprise, then, when Dimitri and Crean and one dog-team reached Cape Evans about midday on February 23rd with a note from Atkinson, who said that he thought he had better stay with Lieutenant Evans, and that someone else should take out the dogs. He suggested that Wright or myself should take them. This was our first intimation that the dogs had not already gone south. Wright and I started for Hut Point by 2 p.m. the same day, and on our arrival it was decided by Atkinson that I was to take out the dogs. Owing to the early departure of our meteorologists, Simpson, Wright, who had special qualifications for this important work, was to remain at Cape Evans. Dimitri, having rested his dog-team overnight at Cape Evans, arrived at Hut Point on the morning of the 24th. End of chapter 13, part 1